What's up guys, hope your day's going well. Today I am talking with Dr. Daniel Paul. Daniel is an orthopedic surgeon that is operating his own practice that he started from scratch out in Colorado Springs. He's a great guy that's really got a great business going. It's called Easy Orthopedics. You'll also see that he speaks with honesty, even when it's painfully true. And he's also a great innovator. And like any great innovator, he's not built to simply go along with the idea that we should do things just because that's the way they've always been done. But what's especially interesting about Daniel is how he's running his business, which is completely different than the traditional system of healthcare. And he's in turn starting to disrupt the industry, I think, in a good way. And so today we're going to be talking about why his practice is so unique. He's going to share how he got it to this point of really running on full steam and how he's become such an innovator and built this practice that's really relatively simple, yet is completely blazing a new trail. We discuss how dollars per hour is such an important metric to pay attention to for physicians, especially those of you guys that are having limited spare time, feel like you don't have any time. And so we also discuss why this new model he's trailblazing is such a better alternative for physicians and for patients and how it can help solve some of these burnout issues and other issues in, in healthcare. Overall, it was a really great discussion that I enjoyed. I always love talking to people like Daniel that are really not satisfied with the status quo, people that are motivated to do things differently and chart a new course. We definitely need more guys like him out in the world, really trailblazing and charting a new course. It's, it's, it's motivating. It was motivating for me to hear him talk through this. And I think you're going to enjoy it and be motivated as well. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode now. Daniel, what's up, man? Not too much. I'm excited to have you, man. We had a great conversation kind of talking about what we were going to cover. And I love what you're doing, first of all. I absolutely love innovators and people that are doing things a little bit differently and people that don't really like one of my least favorite things is when I hear people say, oh, well, we're just doing that because that's the way it's always been done. That's like one of my least favorite statements. And I know <laughs> I can tell from your facial expressions, you don't really like that either. And the way that you're doing it, I think your practice is fantastic. It's very innovative. What's interesting though about saying it's innovative is actually in some ways like kind of like the way I think it maybe used to be done back in the day. Like it's really simple as well. And it's not uh, what I think people would think of is innovative, but it's definitely a different way of doing things. And I think it's fantastic. So thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, your kind words there. So yeah, it is kind of a throwback, the model, to maybe what things were like before there was health insurance was really so so involved. So used to be your doc, you'd have your doc, they would do house calls. I mean, to find someone who remembers house calls, they have to be probably into their 80s by now. And when they were a kid, they remember the doctor coming to their house. The doc would have an office with maybe his wife was the receptionist, and that was pretty much it. His notes were just notes for himself, or maybe he would occasionally send them out, but they were really notes so he knew, or he or she knew what they were doing last time. So they were literally notes. And I'm not like, I'm not like a reactionary type person. I just think that with healthcare, I mean, what I've done, and I, well, really what I've done is I've removed all of the parasites. I got rid of all the parasites, and when I boiled it all down, it's kind of looks similar to what 
it used to look like just with a modern twist with technology, of course, not writing paper charts, everything's electronic. I carry an ultrasound around with me, so I don't really use paper a whole lot. So, but the core of it's the same, which is basically spending time with the patient. I think when you do that, you can have a much better outcome because right now the system is built, there's all these high volume practices built for one problem, one patient, five, seven, maybe seven minutes of FaceTimes. God forbid the patient has multiple problems at once, like they're going to get terrible care. And if they're a bad historian, like there's no help. I mean, God help them. I mean, if they can't, if they're a poor historian and the multiple problems, those are the people that get the worst care in our current system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you look at you guys listen and check out his website, it's, it kind of gives you a glimpse of what we're talking about. It's easyorthopedics.com. And so your website, like your front page, transparent pricing. That's a big deal. I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen that on a physician's website. Most of the time, nobody knows what's going on there. House calls, you already mentioned that. Delivering re relationship-based care, you kind of hit on that already. Those are like, those are not happening at all. Those are big time differentiators. And you're, I guess you can infer this from the website, but in orthopedics. And I think a lot of people are like, what is that? Is that possible or, and I would love to dig into that and kind of talk about how you've gotten to where you're at with your practice, but maybe we could take a step back first. Cause I think it'd be really helpful to talk about kind of like how you got here in the first place and how you kind of got to this point of starting this new innovative practice. So maybe like before that, like maybe you could share like a little bit about your training and, and upbringing and kind of how you got to this point of starting this new practice. Gotcha. Sure. I'll try not to make it too long. So I, uh, a short story with me is I come from a family of engineers, like everybody, like both sides of the family, engineers everywhere. So that's probably what I would have done had I not had a bad skiing accident where I broke my right arm and both of my legs when I was 14. And so obviously I was pretty messed up from that. And I had all this orthopedic surgery and it kind of got me whole again. And I was like, this is pretty cool. I think this is what I want to do. So 14 years old, I made the decision, which isn't uncommon in the world of physicians. And sometimes that 14 year old mentality will come back to bite you decades later when you get to the reality of decision that you made when you were so little. But anyways, so I do that, uh, go to college, go to med school in Miami, the university of Miami. And then I do residency five years, like fortunate enough to get into orthopedic surgery residency, which is pretty hard to do. I was out in Toledo, Ohio. So I spent five years there and then I started a fellowship in hand surgery. So I was just going to do hand surgery. And this is where things kind of went off the rails. So a couple of things went on. So I'm in the middle of this hand surgery fellowship, which is an optional year that I've decided to do. I don't need to do I've decided to do it. And it's a year long and I'm like halfway through and I'm looking for a job and I'm looking for a job in Colorado or in Connecticut, which is where I'm, my wife's from and where I'm from and we're in Colorado now. And it's like, man, I just can't find one. Or if I find one, the best word for it is abusive. Where like they want you taking all of their call all the time. They're giving you the short end of the stick just continuously. And it kind of created this existential crisis where I was basically like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? I mean, I'm, I'm college, medical school, residency, you're just grinding. Your head's down. And then when I, I finally had a second to look up and I'm like, wow, these jobs are pretty terrible. Like they're bad. All I was doing was talking to, I remember interviewing for one of this old senior partner, which is telling me bitterly how much money he made in the nineties and then how much money he's offering now is like, where it's a big disconnect there. 
And the chops out in Colorado were, like I said, abusive at best. And so that was going on. So it's existential crisis. What am I doing? I'm, at this point, I've dragged my wife all over the country for my trading. And we wanted to go back to Colorado. And it's like, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that with, with my job. So that's going on. And then at the same time, the fellowship, to put it lightly or bluntly, was not a positive educational experience. So it kind of created this huge negative ball of like motivational, unhappy energy. And like I had to do something with it. So I quit my fellowship, like I broke my lease and we just moved out to Colorado. And I had the idea for the practice from a friend who started something similar in Miami, but with internal medicine. And I said, he's the happiest guy I know that from my medical school class. And he's doing really well financially. I'm, I'm like, there's something here. There's something here. I don't know what it is. No one's done it for orthopedics, but I was at a point where I'm living in my in-laws basement and I'm just going to go for it. So, I mean, a lot of people said like, oh, that's really brave, but it wasn't some sort of calculated, let me sit down and do it. It was a desperate desperation where maybe you don't have the time to really think these things through. You just kind of go for them. And that was about four years ago. So it's done pretty nicely over the past four years. The key, there keys, there's key components to it. One is I don't take any insurances. I don't take private insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, nothing. I treat them all the same. I don't say any of them. And because if I do take insurances, it will run me into the same problem that every other practice is having, where you don't control your overhead and you need a, a staff of ratio for approximately five to one. And your re reimbursements go down after a year and it becomes this high volume, crazy practice that's not even profitable and turns into insolvency that gets bought up by private equity or a hospital. So I knew I didn't want to do that. And then what I realized is, oh, I get to spend a lot more time with patients. And then I said, I'm actually, I think, delivering better care because if they've got five or six problems, I can go through all of them. And my overhead is, I decided to be mobile, which keeps the overhead down. So I see patients in their homes or at various offices. I don't pay for any of this. I'm value added when I'm there, right? Like if a certain provider's like, hey, this guy's got shoulder pain. Can you come see him in my office? Sure. They said, but I'm going to charge you. I'd say, well, I'll see him at their house. I always have that default option. And so I keep my overhead low. So I don't need to really turn the treadmill up high to really do well. So that's kind of the journey in a nutshell. Everybody's always like, man, it sounds scary and courage, like you were saying. But when you're, you point out a few things I think are super important. You were living in your, did you say your in-law's basement? Yeah, we moved into the in-law's basement. In-law's basement. I could, I would guesstimate that means you had a very modest lifestyle. Oh yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, they were, we weren't paying the rent. They were just nice enough to give us like housing and food. I mean, so mm -hmm. we pay our own personal expenses. They were minimal. Yeah. When your lifestyle is very modest, it's way less intense to go. Cause that's the biggest startup cost. When you're starting a business, the biggest cost is like yourself most of the time. And so when you have a modest lifestyle, that's huge. And so that reduces a lot of this anxiety people have on the front end. You could, you don't, you can also reduce your lifestyle before you do it. Some people do that as, as well, but I think that I would suspect that helped you not feel so intimidated going into it because then you didn't have as big of a nut to crack early on and you could focus in on, cause th that's the other thing I suspect too, in the early days, it was slim pickings oh, yeah. at the very beginning, right? You weren't just rolling the money right away. No, no way. I mean, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, you're poor. Right. I think that right. first year I got like the child tax credit or something <laughs> like, cause I wasn't making any money. I mean, I think, oh my gosh. I mean, times have certainly changed. I think yeah. I maybe made $500 my first quarter. Yeah. Which my friends are coming out of fellowship, starting salary. $500,000. $500,000, $400,000. <laughs> I 
I'm living in a basement. I made $500 my first quarter, but I was really lucky to get that. And it snowballed from there. It was just figuring things out. But no, the modest lifestyle is huge because it's like a trade-off between autonomy and not having and, and stuff. So mm-hmm. if you can free yourself from the mindset of, I need a lot of stuff, you can have a lot of autonomy. Mm-hmm. And I'm consulting now for other docs who, you know, are looking to do you know, something similar. And one complaint that I get, not from the people who actually pay me to consult, from the people that don't want to pay me to consult, is that, well, what am I supposed to do? I've got this house and all these payments and all these, my kids are in private school and all these cars. And it's like, well, you golden handcuffed yourself. You took the golden handcuffs and you cinched them around your wrist and cinched them in together. Now you have no ability to move. Uh-huh. Your payments are so stupidly high. And it's like, why did you do that to yourself? It mm. doesn't, I mean, you can still have a very nice existence without being decadent and, and needing the nicest of every single thing. I mm. mean, you can buy your luxuries later, have more wealth. I mean, but mm. they don't, they buy them immediately. And I think that creates a big problem because to yeah. go back from that is hard. And maybe it's not just them, but it's also their family and their kids are now used to that lifestyle. And yeah, it's like the opposite it- direction is difficult. If you sign a big monster contract, even if it's paying a bajillion dollars and then you've got a five-year lock-in and then you you buy the really nice house and you're doing it for your family with good intentions and then the private school, like you're saying, and then all the other stuff comes with it. Um, and then the productivity stuff starts to kick in after a year. And then you realize, man, you got to work long hours. You're not even seeing your family. And then they start to, and you realize you don't have any control and then you start to feel like burnout, frustration, like this place sucks. But at that point, you got no options. I mean, that's a scary place to be in. Unfortunately, I see a ton of people that are in that exact spot. Oh, I believe it. I mean, they've dug them. They've been digging their own grave one, one shovel pull at a time. And the mm-hmm. irony is, is you may be working so hard that your relationships with your spouse deteriorate. Yeah. You Even end though- up getting divorced and you don't see your family, which is the whole reason mm-hmm. they may have done that stuff. So, I mean... Yeah, it, 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 they really trap you. The hospital systems and these large employers—they know they they want you to buy the large house. They want mm-hmm. you to buy the nice cars. They want you to be stuck, and they get the P two, so they know they can give you a decent contract the first two years, and then when it comes up for renewal, they want to, and they can really hammer you, and you essentially have very yeah. recourse. I didn't even mention the non compete. That's even worse. And then what happens to it? Yeah, I've a lot of times they have the realtor like waiting for you when you go visit. And they're like, oh, let's go to the million dollar house neighborhood. And the hospital has the realtor that they kind of like introduce. I mean, it's, I, I have suspicion that it is an intentionality aspect to that, which is pretty sad, but it does benefit. The hospital has incentives to kind of lock people down. Oh, yeah. And the best way to lock somebody down is to get them to buy a big old fancy house. Yeah, they want leverage, right? You got a non compete and you, you, you need that salary. You are salary addicted. They've got all the leverage in the world. They say, hey, mm-hmm. you need to travel out an hour to go see patients at this faraway clinic we just bought. I don't want to. Well, you have to. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, it doesn't jive well with me. I mean, for me living in the basement, like, what are you going to do to me? Right. Yeah. I'm already in my in-laws basement. I'm comfortable there. It's not that I want to <laughs> stay there forever. Like, I don't need any money. I mean, I don't need a ton of money at that time. And then as we got more money, I mean, right now I'm in my own basement recording this. So <laughs> the world, but you know, we did that once we business was stable and we had wealth and we could sort of buy things. And even as the wealth increases, I, I, we still try, I mean, we still buy quality things, but I try to remain frugal. I think frugal yeah. is super important. Yeah. Uh, 
people, I would say the difference between that and being cheap is someone who's frugal will still spend for quality and buy nice things, the things they want to do. While someone who's cheap just will try to not spend any money if at all possible. Period. So I, I think frugality it would be a good trait among a lot of physicians if they could harness that. But like a lot of them don't because of yeah. all this, like they've been waiting, they finally gather, like I deserve all this really nice stuff. And I guess they do, but they, they're setting a trap for themselves. Yeah. And that's a bad spot to be in. It can come and bite you. And at that point, you don't even want to admit that you're having trouble with work because you're realizing you don't have any options. So you have to put on your smile and like, which I think would even compound that further because you're like cognitive dissonance. It's like you're doing one thing and in reality, it's completely a different thing. And you're like, who am I? I mean, that kind of stuff really weighs on people. Um, and it's a tough spot to be in. The good news about, I mean, if you're listening, you're in like that sort of spot, like you don't have to like continue. The best thing to do is to kind of cut the lifestyle to free up the control to make choices. You're not gonna be able to quit the job until, you know, free up the lifestyle in that sort of situation. You have to do the lifestyle thing first and then you'll start to feel those options. I, I've worked with some people that have like sold the big fancy house, moved in with their parents in the basement. And kind of went back the other direction. It's totally possible and you can get the control back. It's just, it just takes some hard decisions. Yeah. It's all about leverage. So you've built yourself, if you buy all that stuff, right. And like, I, I totally get the reason why someone buys it. It's not a morally corrupt decision. It's just, no, causes you long-term pay. I mean, you've essentially created a zero leverage position for yourself. So you want to get leverage back to the point where, you know, the hospital says, we want you to do this. You can say, I don't want to. And then you say, well, we're going to let you go. And you say, fine. Yeah. And they realize, oh, wait a second, we need you. And right. uh, then you have, you can bargain leverage. or you can do, right. so you need leverage. You just, you know, and I think a lot of that comes from being in treating as a resident where you have a zero leverage possession mm -hmm. pretty much the entire time. Maybe right. even negative leverage. I mean, it's really bad. I had yeah. only one single time in re residency that I ever had any leverage, which was when. I was supposed to sign these documents on time, but I did, but their system went down. So I got them all late and it would have created like some sort of warning in the system. I said, look, I'm happy to sign them. I realized your system went down. I just want something in writing saying that it's not my fault. And they're like, oh, we spoke to our supervisor and we don't do that. And I'm like, well, then I'm not signing. <laughs> and they went all the way to my chairman, right? And he's like, oh, he's uh, very smart. He supported me. And then they did give it to me. And that is the only time. I ever had any leverage in res because right you, you make because then something later happens and they're like well this is a history for you and you're like no that first time wasn't my fault and they just do not care so that way you have it in writing you can throw it yeah out. I mean leverage is important and having the freedom and so your model no insurance right all cash you're are people paying for services yeah I think I know they are but I mean I think that's a question so. By cash, how I define it is not interfacing with an insurance company. Mm. So for me, I can do whatever I want as long as I don't have to interface with an insurance company, meaning I don't have to submit notes to an insurance company. I don't have that whole revenue cycle management. As long as I can stay out of that, then it works well for me. So like I paired that with like medical legal work. I also do personal injury work, which means I might not get paid for a year or two or, or at all. But for me, interfacing with the lawyer's minimal overhead requirement generates medical legal work. So that's fine. But the, going back though, do people pay for it? Yeah, they do. Because there's a lot of people out there who don't have insurance or, or their deductible is very high. And I am actually the most economical option for them mm -hmm. as compared to going in a system where they don't know what they're going to pay and they're, they're scared of that. So mm -hmm. 
I think people wrongly assume that a direct care model is like, oh, you're just seeing really rich people all the time. And that's really not what it is. They don't, I don't think they under, they have a good understanding of the percentage of population with no insurance or bad insurance who are looking for healthcare. Mm-hmm. And you really serve that population much better than the in-system stuff. So there's, they're out there. Yeah. Most of the people, I get to look at everybody's financial stuff in my day job. So I get to see all their insurance numbers and I would say the majority of people have pretty stinking high deductibles on their health insurance. That's more common than not having insurance, but there's also a a pretty large, there's people that don't have insurance at all. There's people that have like health sharing, which is not technically insurance. So there's all kinds of people that are doing that kind of deal, but maybe you could talk through the economics a little bit. I'd love it if we could kind of just talk like high level, not like details, but like high level, like how is it? How are you able to make it work from a financial standpoint? I know your expenses are pretty low. That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So my overhead, I haven't calculated in a while. When it's at its lowest, it was like $800 a month, including malpractice. And then my wife works with me now. So it's probably more like $2,500 a month. So I think you're looking at 60, 70 bucks a day, the cost of running the business. That includes malpractice, mm-hmm. equipment, everything, right? The staff's just me and my wife. So I've cut down an office. I've cut out staff. So, I mean, that slashes all your costs, essentially, to flows you can get them, in my opinion. Yeah. But then if I see one patient, it's like I travel to them, I give them a steroid injection or something, that's like $400. So you can do the math there if you add a few of them together. So if you add a few of them together, I mean, it's like you're really not working now? a lot. You're really not working a lot. You're doing quite well. Is four a day reasonable? Yeah, four days reasonable. And I'm not always hitting four a day, sometimes more, sometimes less, right? And then I pair yeah. it with medical legal work or I'll do personal injury. And that's, so four a day is like 300 a year minimum. And you're not- And that's net. Right. And you have to, and you also have the tax advantages of, of business. business. So you're yeah. not getting destroyed on a W-2. So if it, mine's an S-corp, so mm-hmm. I pay payroll taxes on my small salary and then I take a monthly distribution, which does go through payroll taxes. So actually come out a lot more ahead than someone who would get the equivalent amount in mm-hmm. salary. We also have write-offs that you use for business, like my personal computer and my wife uses has a phone that we use to answer calls on. So there, there's those intangible or, or I guess tangible benefits that you get. But yeah. the, the other question, which I think is important, is that how many hours are you working also? Yes. Right? So with the numbers we just read, you're probably working three to four hours a day. Uh, okay, that's huge. For four hours a day, let's say five hours a day. So to be I safe, mean, yeah. You're talking, and we're overestimating here. If you work five days a week, twenty-five hours. Yeah. You know, so, which in a lot of docs probably work triple that, or plus minus. So, hmm. I mean, I think the other side of the coin, what a lot of docs don't consider, is how many hours are you working for this money. Like to me, it's like, well, how much are you making? And then it's the follow-up question is. How much are you working? And, and they don't really seem to mm-hmm. ask that secondary question because they all assume we're all busy as all get out, which isn't always the case. Yeah. Uh, I spoke to one orthopedic surgeon once, and this really annoyed me. I should have charged him for a consult. I did. Because <laughs> he definitely had the money for it. And anyways, that's a lesson to be learned from me, right? The reason I charge is not to make money. It's just to protect my time. Your anyways, time is valuable. He was retired early because he made a lot of money doing a business deal, and he was looking to get back into the kind of mix of things and had some questions for me. But, you know, I was telling him like my revenues and he's like, well, I think you're really selling yourself short. It's like, man, you haven't asked the follow-up question. I'm not, how many hours are you working for this? I'm around right. all the time. That's a critical. Like, man, you know, right. Yeah. And like, 
I think that is always the follow-up question. Yeah. Also, my salary isn't static either. I mean, it increases as the years go on and word of mouth spreads and I get busier. Yeah, going back to the scenario we were talking about earlier, like going to work and locking into the hospital and buying the nice house. On top of that, if you throw like 70 plus hour a week commitment, that's a disaster. I mean, that's like, because you don't even have the time to like, well, do, you know, see your family, but for sure you don't have the time to like, look for new options or be creative or think about new things but having a lot of people say that like spending time with family or like i mean in my experience when because we ask people what's most important the most common answer is my family i always one of my favorite quotes is like don't tell me what's most important let's look at your checkbook and your calendar and i'll tell you what's most important and you can look at your calendar if you're working 80 hours a week that doesn't resemble that family is most important now i get it that like a lot of times you kind of get into these situations that lock you down but like this kind of road is way more flexible and you can choose plus you're building a a business too that's in my experience i love doing that and it's something you can turn into whatever you want like you can make it like your own little it's just you and your spouse practice that's small or you could turn it into like a big operation i believe that this kind of medicine is going to explode in the future. Um, and there's going to be demand for once somebody like you starts making good money or gets the word out that you're efficient with your hourly rate, people are going to be like, I'm already fried at my job. I really need to do this. I'm hoping that happens. I think with internal medicine doctors, it's already happened because they hit the Mm -hmm. pain point much earlier or family medicine doctors and direct primary care is like tried and true at this point. Right now, for at least for my specialty of orthopedics, they still do pretty well financially. I think that'll change as time goes on as the reimbursements get slashed down 5% every year. Yeah. So they haven't quite hit that pay point. But I'm hoping more people start. The goal is to build the ecosystem of this kind of alternative model, which in my opinion is, is better. I mean, you remove all the things that you hate, right? Dealing with the hospitals and insurance companies, especially insurance companies. I mean, mm. the hospitals still provide value. Yep. They're really sick. That's where you have to go. But insurance companies really don't, really don't. I mean, there's so many people who lose money on insurance every single year. And oh, yeah. Uh, better ways to do it. I mean, I use a health share myself, but yeah, that's a whole podcast in itself. Oh. <laughs> My goal is to disrupt those sorts of things by essentially removing them from the equation. Yeah. So I know you can make it work for the physician. We just kind of talked through the basic math and we're using like kind of a part-time scenario. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, I think... It sounds better for the patient, particularly because it may be financially and care wise, but I'm curious to get your, to confirm your thoughts on that. Like, is, do you feel really strongly about it being a better model for the patients as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly in the clinic. Yeah, I do think it is because medicine is a time dependent practice. So if someone wants to do a good job with you, they need to spend time with you. Now, you can be the best physician in the world, but if you only have seven minutes with someone, you're going to be able to only do seven minutes worth of work. It's like me asking you to paint a wall in 10 minutes. Like, you can do it. may not be good. So I think that my appointments are booked for a lot longer, like close to an hour. So I get to really spend a lot of time. All questions are answered. They have my cell phone number when they're done, and they can call or text. So I think communication is much better. And I think any doc practicing in this sort of model will find themselves a much better position than they were in the previous model. Mm. Now, of course, there's things like trauma where you need to go to a hospital. I'm not saying that. Yeah. There's still a role for that. But for just 
clinical settings and everything, I think that it, uh, it's better care. I mean, especially yeah. for the person who has multiple problems, especially for the person who's a poor historian, because they mm. get particularly bad care. But it doesn't sound, it's actually a very efficient use of time in a way, because instead of seeing someone for five or six times, I mean, you get, you can make a lot of progress with them in an hour when you just have that time to spend with them. Yeah. I mean, you're cutting out a bunch of like this fat in the system that exists and the patient's paying for that. I mean, the physician and the patient collectively, but like the patient's paying at the end of the day for a lot of that fat in the form of like the premiums just keep going up on health insurance, whether their employer pays it or they pay it, which in the end of the day, they pay it (laughs) because the employer passes it through. But like the patients are paying for it at the end of the day, either way you spin it. Right, right. Yeah, the employers. I mean, it goes up like double digits every year. And these companies yeah. are raking in record profits and squeezing these companies. So companies are starting to be like, well, what can we do to not pay disaster premiums? And some of them are going to self-funded. And so like this model works very well for that. Mm-hmm. Like I've been able to do some surgeries for a company that basically pays me to do their surgeries, small surgeries. And to them, it saves a lot of money. So they're happy about that. Yeah. So it's like, it's better for the patients. It's better for the physician. And I know there are lots of exceptions. And like you're saying, like there's definitely still a place for hospitals and, and special, especially in specialization areas. But like, I'm just really curious, like why more people aren't doing it. It seems to be like a logical solution. Cause I talk to people all day long that are really frustrated by their jobs. In fact, regularly people are like, I hate it. Like, like I despise my work. I hear people say that, um, or like, and they're saying, you know, I want to do, I want to work as hard as I can to get to be financially independent as fast as I can so so that I can retire early or I'm going to switch or I'm going to do side gigs so that I can get out of this world. But like, there's this other avenue out there in my experience too i haven't come across yet somebody that's doing this direct pay model where they're frustrated in fact they all love it they want people won't stop talking about it because it's they love it so much so it just kind of is weird to me that like more people aren't doing it yeah you see all the miserable doctors in the system and all the happy doctors and yeah i'm like what in the world and, and you're like, there's a disconnect here. Why are they- I keep talking about it on, on this podcast because I'm so baffled by it. I mean, I've had like, if you're listening, you're like, man, this is enough direct care. People like quit it with the direct care. But like, for real, I, I don't genuinely seems like such a better option. And I feel like it really can help with a lot of these problems that are coming up. But it's just so slow. Like people are not adapting it. Yeah. So let me see if I can crack this up for you, at least in my opinion. So you, you have to look at the mentality of a physician, right? We used to, when you're in medical training, which is a while, and it really, you're in there for good, you work in like, you know, like close to 80 hour weeks, 60, 70 hour weeks for five years straight, at least for me, that's a lot of training. Mm-hmm. You are not allowed to be creative at all. So, and I don't even mean like artistic projects. I mean, like you see system processes, if you attempt to change them or suggest a better way, and it can be the most, asinine thing you can think of you don't even get like no you get the this is the way we've always done it which i hate obviously. Mm. but more than that you get to, you get beaten down you get meetings you get stomped into the ground so 
It happens to you a couple of times. Like it happened to me. Like I got in trouble a lot in turn year for that. I can see the years I did it. Yeah. You're not for patient care, but for that. Stirring things up. Yeah. You know, for like basically being like these systems are really bad. Yeah. But got really mad at me for like saying that. And so I stopped saying it. So basically by the time you come out of training, your creativity to do anything like that is smushed. And then your ability to take risk along with that is as well. So with any new business, you really need a good risk profile and you need an ability to take you need some creativity. And like, once I got out of the system, all that came back to me. And that's what's led me to be successful. The very things that would cause me to get in trouble while being in the system are the same things that lead me to be successful out of the system. So you need, I think they have trouble re-harnessing that or finding that again, especially if they're still working in the system. Like we talked about the lifestyle issues that locks them into a salary. So with any new business, you know, you're going to be poor for a while, unless you're venture capital backed, which I wouldn't, that's not my thing, but you're poor for a while. And I don't know if they're, they're not able to do that. Made a good amount of money for too long, even though they're making less as time goes on. So I think between all those things, they haven't, you know, they have not able to do it. I mean, so the activation energy, I guess is what I'm saying is extremely high. I think that's why you saw it in primary care docs because the pain point for them was so high that they, they, they've managed to now do it. But even still with them, it's still a small percentage of docs that have done direct care. And some of those docs who are most damaged by the systems are the most ardent defenders of them. They're the first ones to tell you that this will never work, like this isn't blah, blah, blah. And it's like, meanwhile, they're also the most damaged by the system at the same time. So they're like, maybe they're like defending a system that's abusing them because if they had come to the realization that like, oh, like I could do this other thing that's better and I'm not doing that. It causes some sort of strife. Yeah, but I think hearing people talk about it more, I mean, that's partly why I, I haven't stopped talking about it for a little while. I think the more you hear stories and examples of people doing it a different way um, and blazing the trail and, you know, doing it, you know, t- kind of like nobody had done it how you've done it before you did it. And so that's especially... Mm-hmm scary uh for some people um but like as you start to see more people do it and the model becomes more clear and i think it's a little bit less prone and i'm sure that there's going to be companies like yours will grow and then you're going to be like i might want to hire and i have clients that are doing this now like indirect care indirect primary care they're like i need to hire another physician and i'm going to hire him on a salary and then there's the risk goes down to where you're not having to like just straight up jump jump into the unknown. Yeah, I think you're going to see that. It might happen to me at some point. It would be nice to get somebody who compliments my skill set in the world of orthopedics. And I'm playing a long game here, essentially, is what I'm saying. Like, mm-hmm. my practice is paradoxically more stable than most of these big hospital systems or large private practice contracts. Doesn't seem like it would be, but I get my revenue from a lot of different sources, different. And if one of them goes down, it's not a big deal. Meanwhile, if you're working for these companies, I mean, there's so many mergers and acquisitions and there's so much political fighting that you may find, I mean, I don't think these big system jobs are really stable right now, to be honest with you. No, I agree. There's so much, there's so many things brewing and in your position, one of the ways I like to look at entrepreneurship, it's like in your position, you have to have, I don't know how many patients you see, but like, they all have to fire you. <laughs> like they all have to stop working with you for it to kind of be a, a big, huge blow up versus if the hospital, like one, usually one person can kind of make that call. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's pretty scary. 
It is super scary. And it can be, you could be a good doctor. Yeah. If just not productive enough. You know, if you're not the surgeon just cutting onto every single thing that walks in, they're going to be not happy with you. But maybe you're a really good doc who still does a lot of surgeries. You're just not as productive as the doc down the hole who's lauded for just doing surgery on anything that has a pulse. Yeah. So there's a lot of other dynamics. I mean, I could tell you stories too. I mean, it's, it's, it can be, I'm not saying always, it can be really bad. Yeah. Would you say you were always an entrepreneur? Like if I was asking you residency or fellowship or something, like, would you have said you were an entrepreneur then? No, I wouldn't have said an entrepreneur. I never had a chance to. Yeah. Like once I started it for me, I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this. This is like a natural rhythm of my life. Like, yeah, feels like the right stride and pace and everything. So I really love entrepreneurship, but I didn't know until I started it. And not everybody's like that. I get that. Um, but I think for me, it's like a means to have control and autonomy over my life is by also being an entrepreneur and uh, putting work into that. Yeah. One of the things I love about entrepreneurship is it, it seems to align more with, or like you're incentivized kind of to like do self-development. It's like the things you need to develop to be a good entrepreneur are also good life skills, like, like failing, screwing, having mistakes. Like in entrepreneurship, mistakes are a positive. Like it's like learning, failing forward yeah. versus in the real world. That's kind of how it is too. I know in, in medicine, a lot of times it's not looked at that. You have to have high expectations and it's more like perfection is the target, but in entrepreneurship, there's a lot of skills and you have to develop, you have to market yourself and be able to sell the services and grow a business and handle the finances. The financial part is, is one of the biggest things. Like you're kind of forced to be thrown into the financial aspects when you run a business. You kind of have to know baseline financials. Like you got to keep the books and you got to, I mean, you can't really hire everything out, right? No. Yeah. I mean, like for me, I remember at one point, I'm like, I've got all these money that people owe me on this piece of paper. I'm like, maybe I should put it in an Excel spreadsheet. I'm like, oh, there's my accounts receivable. Right. I've had for years. So that's fine. There's figuring it out for sure. There's making, well, that didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. And and with me figuring out how the heck do I market myself? There's, I found out who the good referral sources are and who's not. And I made yeah. sure to develop the good relationships and the ones that don't refer, I don't. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff I've had to figure out, but it's been enjoyable. I mean, most of my reading has been sort of like behavioral psychology lately. Right. It helps with, is the best for small business. I would kind of advocate against an MBA, at least for small business. I don't think that's, if you want to yeah. work in the corporate battle somewhere, or you want to make really good connections to possibly get a good job in business, then MBA can be helpful. But running small business, I think it can be kind of detrimental because I think everything is supposed to focused on human relations and things that not just boiling everything down to numbers. So that's my two cents about that. But yeah, I, I think failing is okay in entrepreneurship. Yes. But in, when there's the medicine side, like you don't want to do that. You are aiming for perfection. You try to do the best possible standard of care job you possibly can every single time. But with entrepreneurship, it's a little bit more, you're exploring. There's some level of exploration. Yeah. You know, one of the best ways to market a business is to be different, like very unique and different. And your business is very unique and different. I mean, there's nobody now in some ways that's a, that can be a challenge early on because there's not any market awareness for it yet, or it's lower. So people are like, what do you mean? Like I gotta, 
Yeah, that's what my health insurance is for. But but differentiation, like you got that nailed. Like you're very Ithacus. <laughs> you got some serious differentiators, which is really good typically for marketing. And that's the thing. Everybody's kind of doing the same thing. It's like, well, that doesn't that's no different. I mean, I don't pay for marketing either, too. So my marketing budget is zero. Yeah. Uh, I do networking and then words word of mouth at this point. So I mm. spent me taking someone out for lunch to me is like, I guess, I, I guess that's marketing dollars in a sense, but mm -hmm. I'm not like they go to advertising. I mean, that's just, that's such a black hole of money. Yeah. The other thing, my experience of word of mouth marketing versus like referrals, provider referrals, like in a hospital referrals or whatever, like word of mouth marketing, you tend to get people you get along with or like you're in the same sort of values circle more often um, because you're typically being referred uh, by somebody that you liked or they liked you and that also they like themselves. So um, my experience has been that word of mouth referrals are far and away the best from a connection standpoint, not necessarily anything else, but just from a like connectivity standpoint, which is really good because that's one thing that I've heard a lot of physicians say too, is they are like, it's very frustrating to work with patients that don't value what I do at all. Oh yeah. It, it, it happens to me, but extremely rarely. Most of the time, if I'm seeing them, they have to decide whether I'm going to be valuable or not. So yeah, generally speaking, I, I don't want to work with anybody who doesn't value what I do. But that is extremely frustrating because mm -hmm. they're like, well, why am I seeing you? Got all these problems. I mean, that's why I'm, you're seeing me. But to go back to word of mouth marketing, I think it's the most powerful and it's the least expensive, but it also takes the longest. Yeah, it does. Uh, it just takes a really long period of time, but once you get it going, and it's solid. I mean, that's also the problem with these employee jobs. If they put you out of town with a not-compete, there goes all that goodwill that you've built up over the years among the yeah. Yeah. The last thing I want to talk about as we start to wrap up, you have some really good advocacy going on LinkedIn. If For those of you guys listening, make sure to check out Daniel's LinkedIn profile. He's got all kinds of, I mean, maybe some people get offended, probably like a small percentage of people sometimes get offended, which I think is a good sign of like truth coming out because it's going to be offensive. And a lot of people in our world today are like afraid to offend people. And that's another thing I respect about you is you're like, it doesn't appear afraid about offending people. Go read some of his LinkedIn posts and you'll kind of get an idea of what I'm talking about. But one of the examples I, I looked at recently was talking about not doing prior authorizations. Oh yeah. <laughs> and now that, I mean, and that's people, people are like, what? Yeah. I mean, so that was interesting. So for me, I don't deal with insurance, but sometimes people have insurance. Like the example was a lady wanted to get an MRI of her neck. Or I thought she needed an MRI of her neck. She had these symptoms for a while. She was kind of a recluse for COVID, staying at home. And we tried some therapy shots, whatever. And I order it. And she wants to do insurance, which is fine. And then I get a call from some company out of Massachusetts. And I'm in Colorado. Oh, we're just gathering information for your prior authorization. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't believe in those. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, oh I don't do those. And like, it was just silence. <laughs> We've probably ever said that to her before. And she's like, it's for your patient. And I'm like, I'm sure it is. But I'm like, if the insurance company denies it, that's on the insurance company, not me. I'm not contracted with any of them. I don't have to do prior authorizations. And I, I called the patient and I said, hey, I think they're going to deny your MRI. I would call them. And she called them and she gave them hell and they approved it. That strategy will always work. But it worked that time. But the whole point is, is they exist because we say, okay, I'll do them. And so it's just a, it's an attritional game, which I think is really stupid. 
insurance companies don't want to pay for it, even though they do want to pay for it, which is a whole different story. But so I posted that on LinkedIn. It's like, I hate prior authorizations more than anyone, but we have to do them. It's, you're the reason that prior authorizations exist because you continue to do them. Yeah, you got to draw a line. And what did you say? You got to draw a line. Yeah. I mean, at what point? I'm the medical expert. I'm seeing the patient. I'm not benefiting financially from this MRI. It's for clinical diagnosis and reasons. The person's paying their premium. And they have a right to get that MRI. And who are, is the insurance company tell me to deny it? Based on what? Based on some medical expert that's in the bowels of the building that has never seen the patient? They've never seen the patient. I mean, it's hard to make, uh, you know, medical recommendations in, in that sort of situation. Without, it's almost like health insurance is trying to make health calls. They do. Yeah. They make, they, they direct medical care and have no liability for it. So if we wanted you to get an MRI, so let's say like something and they denied it, let's say it showed a tumor that was now metastatic, they have zero liability in that case, zero. So they could have caused the detriment of your health and they aren't liable for it because they say at the end of the day, well, we're not saying you can't do it. We're just saying we're not going to pay for it. But in the reality of the situation, it means that it's not going to get done. So I feel that they should have medical liability if they want to deny care along those ways. Yeah. yeah you get people being like, well, they just want to make sure that the MRI is appropriate. It's like, how do they know? Are they sending their own doctor there to evaluate the patient? No. So how can they make that determination? Yeah, the doctor's already said it. Yeah, the medical doctor, considering a medical expert, right, has already said it. And most of the time is not benefiting financially from that, but yet they say no. And then 90% of the time they end up approving these. So they're just dragging the doctor through like an hour-long phone session where it has to be peer-to-peer, doctor-to-doctor. And if you've ever done one of these peer-to-peers, you get to it and it's like, I'm talking about ankle syndesmosis to cardiologist who I'm sure is extremely intelligent, but has no idea what he's talking about. And I know that because he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just going to approve it. So, I mean, that is that. So I just avoid all that. It's like, I'm not participating in it. I don't do that. We can get you a cash MRI for $500, which may be less than what you pay with a deductible anyways. Yeah. And then the funny thing is when you order an MRI for cash, it just gets done like same day. And the facility loves to have those. There's nothing to do. They just, patient pays, they get it. And they can use an HSA or whatever. It's great. Yeah. It's somehow, I mean, it amazingly becomes super simple when you eliminate insurance, especially from the mix. And sometimes the hospital can get a little screwy too, but insurance is just a, a train. Yeah. Try to figure out your billing. Good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can outsource it, but how do they know if they care? The people working for you, maybe. And then you're paying, it's the cost of paying for people to deal with all the junk. Like that's added overhead. It's huge overhead because it's it's a lot of staff. And then also you need to house this staff. So your office is going to be bigger. And then also like the benefits as well, which just comes back to insurance on the others. So it's what's driving these practices into insolvency and why they're considering getting bought up by private equity, which in my opinion, is probably one of the worst groups that can buy into medicine because they obviously only care about money, which is their job is. And I think that sometimes conflicts with good medical care, even though they'll, they'll basically lie to you and say it doesn't. Always, maybe. I would say always. Yeah, always. Yeah. It, 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 funny thing about private equities, they'll say whatever they need to say to get the keys to the castle, right? And I think as physicians, we don't assume that they would, somebody would be dishonest, but, yeah. but, but, but they do. They'll make it up if they have to. Yeah. And, I think a lot of physicians are extremely naive. 
Yeah. They'll just convince themselves it's true temporarily. Right. I mean, whether it's <laughs> lying, whether it's lying or it's bullshitting, who's to say, but it's not mm-hmm. truthful, whatever yeah. it is. In a lot of these cases, I would I would I would guess. Do you think physician burnout will increase? Oh yeah. It's gonna accelerate. I mean, because yeah. the, the abuses of that system, look. The United States is considered the wealthiest country in the history of the world, right? History of the world, wealthiest country. And 20%, about 20% of the GDP of dollars spent is on healthcare. So it's this monstrosity. There's so much money in it. And the entities that are making that money want to make more money, like how hospital systems, pharmaceuticals, health insurance companies. And so that will only increase as they'll just keep leaning in that direction. So all the systemic abuses that physicians face will increase as that be- just becomes an accelerated process as they become more, get more and more resources. So yeah, I think it'll increase. I don't think the shelf life of a physician in the system is like 30 plus years anymore. It's mm. probably half of that at this current point in time, at least in that model. Yeah. Something's going to blow up. I mean, yeah. this stitch, the more painful it gets, it's like ripe for disruption. Yeah. I mean, in a weird way, it's good because it'll drive more people into this other sort of model that I think we need to grow and build. Eventually, if we get enough people and different providers and physicians in it, it can be a comparable to the other model, just without all the stuff that you hate. But again, it's like one piece at a time. Yep. Well, Daniel, this has been fun. I, I love a conversation, good conversation about entrepreneurship and, and your business sounds super cool. And I'm excited to hear it's doing well. I think the more that kind of thing happens, the better. I mean, that's kind of like a shining light in the train wreck of healthcare. And keep up the good word on LinkedIn. I appreciate you having me on, Daniel. Yeah, I'll try. I just try to just sow discord on there and plant seeds of truth to the best of my ability. And people hate on it. Most people like it. I'll just yeah. run until I'm forced to, until it's like forced to stop. Yeah. No, keep it up, man. Please know that anything I've said today in this podcast should not be considered advice. It is completely for educational and entertainment purposes only. It would be best to view me as just another guy talking about money on the internet. For advice, please consult your advisors. If you don't happen to have a financial advisor already, I happen to know a firm that's absolutely fantastic. It's actually the firm I started and currently run now, Ren Financial Planning. And we would love to get to know you better and see if we might be able to help. Feel free to reach out anytime to schedule an introductory meeting. You can find more info about us at www.renfinancial.com.